Welcome to the season finale of the Sean S. Show. Today, we're going to take a look back at this past summer in politics and look at what's ahead in politics, elections, 2022, and 2024. We'll be taking a look at those stories and more today, August 10th, 2021. From Anchor by Spotify, this is a special edition of the Sean S. Show, the season finale, with me, your host, Ishan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special edition of the Sean S. Show, marking our season finale today. It's been such a great time these past nine weeks, and I'm so happy to have gotten this opportunity to come to you. But I'm going to set aside all of that stuff for the end of the episode. For now, let's get into today's topic. So because today is the season finale of the show, I thought it'd be nice to just take a look at all the things that have happened this summer and what's in store for the future instead of looking at another topic just to close off the show. So looking at all the previous five, 15 episodes, not five, 15 episodes of this season, so much has happened. Back in May and June, when this show was just taking off, I talked about the cyber attacks that our country was facing. And update on that, since that episode was posted, there have been few attacks here and there. But for the most part, there haven't been many serious ones going on. So that's a good sign. I think it's good that we have this kind of under control or that it has stopped. Like I said in the first episode, the future of global conflict and diplomacy is going to have to find room for cyber warfare and diplomacy. And we're in those early stages right now, firsthand witnesses. And then after that, we talked about the Biden administration's first major foreign policy initiatives. In that episode, I remember we discussed Vice President Kamala Harris's trip to Guatemala and Mexico to discuss the root causes of illegal migration from Northern Triangle countries like El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Now, following that trip, Vice President Harris concluded that many of the root causes were mainly economic and social issues that were driving this surge in migration at the border. While Harris was pretty much doing what she was tasked with, which was finding the root causes of the surge in migration, she still faced a lot of uh, backlash from all sides of the aisle for not actually visiting the border. Well, after that episode was posted and that trip, Harris did end up visiting the border with Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, and they did survey a Texas facility. Now, in that episode, that same episode, I also discussed President Biden's trip to Europe to meet with G7 leaders, NATO, and with Vladimir Putin of Russia. The G7 meeting overall went like a normal G7 meeting. You had leaders from Europe and Japan and the president and Canada, or Prime Minister of Canada, all talking about things. Uh, They talked about COVID, of course. They talked about climate issues. You know, your average G7 meeting. Then the NATO meeting also went pretty well. They discussed Russian aggression. But then the headline meeting was, of course, Biden's meeting with Putin. In that meeting, we're not entirely sure about all the things they talked about. But based on reports, we know that it was productive. 
and Biden made his position clear to Putin and vice versa. Biden and Putin were also joined by um, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, and the Russian Foreign Minister in their meeting. And then, of course, my favorite topic in politics, infrastructure. So when I first covered infrastructure, we had come to the point of Biden already suspending negotiations with the GOP and turning to a bipartisan group of senators led by Kirsten Sinema. By that episode, if I'm not wrong, they had a deal or were on the verge of getting a deal. Well, since then, they have successfully been able to negotiate to a point where the bill is about $1.2 trillion. And after that, Democrats introduced their wish list $3.5 trillion, trillion idea rejection bill, which they plan on passing via reconciliation. Now, I say idea rejection bill because a lot of what's in this bill, it's a mainly partisan bill. But what's in this bill is basically a lot of Democrat wish list items that never made it into the real infrastructure bill. So they're trying to pass all of this stuff um, via a process in the Senate known as reconciliation. Today, while I was writing this script, one of the two big political headlines for today was that the Senate passed the infrastructure bill 69 to 30 in a big win for the Biden administration and I'd say bipartisanship in general. Uh, 69 to 30 is a huge, huge, huge margin um, in which we saw 19 Republicans shift over um, and cross their comfort zone and vote with the 50 Democrats, which also was its own thing going on. So there was a lot of um, there was a lot of work between Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell here to get their senators on board. And really, I won't I don't want to discredit the House's challenges or anything, but I will say that getting this through the Senate is probably the biggest challenge for any of Biden's agenda. So with this now out of the Senate with a 69 to 30 vote, I think Biden has just cleared a major hurdle in this infrastructure plan. Now that $1.2 trillion bill is headed to the House, where Nancy Pelosi is probably going to have an easy time rounding up support. If she doesn't, then that would be very devastating for the Biden administration's agenda. But for the most part, there hasn't been a lot of opposition in the House to this bill from progressives or moderates alike. Uh, And then for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, uh, we'll need to see where that is. But I think the Senate and Congress in general have to go on their recess soon. So they may come out with that soon. Um, So if you want to learn more about these bills, the $1.2 trillion one and the $3.5 trillion one, you can listen to any of the episodes with infrastructure in the name, or you can head over to the SeanSShow.com to read about the Democrats' $3.5 trillion bill. Then in other episodes, we also covered a few elections, including the New York City mayoral primary, the Arizona and Florida Senate races, and of course, the last week, the Ohio primaries. These elections were not exactly real general elections, but they were primaries or preliminary election analyses that gave us insight into the challenges within each of the parties and the prospects for 2022. 
So we'll start off with New York City. So for their primary, I had narrowed the race down to Eric Adams, Catherine Garcia, Maya Wiley, and Andrew Yang. So I posted that on election day and that same night on election day. After seeing the results, I believe Mr. Yang had gotten 11% of the vote. So he had subsequently dropped out of the race that evening. And then ranked choice voting kicked in and kind of really delayed the process. But a few weeks later, we learned that Eric Adams had won the primary and is very likely now going to become the next mayor of New York City. Then in the Florida and Arizona Senate races, I covered these two swing state Senate seats. They're not unique in any way. They are Senate seats that everybody's going to watch. And I know I'm going to cover more of these Senate races in the future. But Arizona and Florida, I just wanted I just felt like covering. So these are two swing states. And we learned that it was quite early, quite quite too early to make any predictions about them. However, we did learn about the vulnerabilities that the incumbents faced, uh, Marco Rubio and Mark Kelly, and the challenges for the challengers and the three keys for campaigning, which I'm going to use to guide future electoral predictions. Those three keys for campaigning include uh, the factor of the incumbency, money, and of course, polling. So I'm going to use those um, that methodology to you know guide my future predictions. And then more recently, we talked about the Ohio primaries in the 11th and 15th congressional districts. So in the 11th district, two Democrats, Nina Turner and Chantel Brown, were up. Turner is a liberal, Bernie Sanders type of progressive, and Bi- Brown is a Biden-esque moderate. Chantel Brown ended up winning that primary, and it was a win for moderate Democrats. Uh, across America, because while it showed the complexities of the Democratic Party's, um, you know, internal struggle between progressives and moderates, it also validated a lot of moderate Democrats' um, a lot of moderate Democrats's, you know, intentions of wanting to have control of their party. So Chantel Brown's victory was another step in that validation process because moderates. After Bernie Sanders' 2016 run, I'd say moderates did lose some ground in the Democratic Party, uh, and they've just been trying to recover since. And then in the 15th district, there was a hotly coveted Republican primary to replace their outgoing Republican representative. So the 15th district is a reliably Republican district, but the real test here was of the Trump endorsement. You see, a week before that election, President Trump's endorsement did not end up having the same impact as anticipated in an election in Texas. The Republican that Trump endorsed ended up losing her election. So the Ohio primary was a real challenge for that endorsement, like it was a test for that endorsement. But uh, Mike Carey, the Trump endorsee, did end up winning the election, not to the surprise of many, including myself, and a validating point for Mr. Trump. If you're interested in hearing any of my electoral analysis, then listen to any of my episodes labeled with these very topics. Then finally, this past summer, we talked about some other topics, including the Texas walkout, where Texas Democrats walked out of the the House chamber and, in fact, the state to prevent a restrictive voting bill from getting passed in the Republican-controlled legislature. 
The Texas Democrats were once again able to block the passage of the bill when the, um, the most recent time they walked out of the state. But I believe the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, is calling another special session of the legislature to once again put this bill to a vote. Then we talked about the House January 6th committee uh, and the backlash that and praise that it's been facing. We've talked about the outcast Republicans, including Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are leaders of the anti-Trump GOP movement. We also then talked about the pandemic elephant in the room, COVID-19, and its increased involvement, if you will, in our political discourse. So that was a look at all the political headlines we covered here on the show. If you want to know more about these stories or just, you know, feel interested in hearing them again, look through all the past 15 episodes of this season and you'll be able to listen to those stories. So I also mentioned, so I mentioned how the infrastructure package passing today was a big deal. And I said it was one of two major headlines today. So I wanted to take just a few minutes to discuss the other story of the day, which was about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigning from his job. So this has been an ongoing topic in politics for a while. And it's actually, it started around even before this show started, but I haven't really covered it at all. And that was because I was watching what was happening and I anticipated something occurring before the season concluded. And I guess I was just right. I just it just happened to take place today. So for my friends who who aren't aware, I'll catch you up on this. What happened was Governor Andrew Cuomo, a name probably most people in America and across the world even recognized for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic in New York, was accused of inappropriate behavior and actions in the workplace with women in his office. Some of these accusations started surfacing in March of this year alongside some other scandals involving nursing homes and other things, which prompted the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, to launch an investigation into the inappropriate behavior while the legislature of New York was also, also launched an impeachment inquiry into Governor Cuomo for his behavior. So for the f- most part, Democrats either called on him to resign then itself or they waited for the report. Now, last week, Attorney General James issued that report, which concluded that Governor Cuomo did in fact do some seriously inappropriate things with 11 women who accused him of such and contributed to a toxic working environment. After that, leaders like President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called on him to resign or for the, or for the legislature to move on with their impeachment. I personally thought from a non-political perspective that this behavior was just, it's not acceptable and that Cuomo needed to go because these were indisputable facts and it's not something that's suiting of the office. And from a political perspective, he's lost all of his allies, so it didn't make sense for him to stay in office anyway. Well, while I was writing today's script, I got a headline saying that Cuomo was about to speak on those allegations and the report. So I just tuned in and I'll be honest with you. I was surprised when he announced that he would, quote, step aside and leave his office in 14 days. Um, not many people actually were really expecting it. People 
figured that something was going to happen in terms of him being in office. But I don't think really anybody anticipated Cuomo resigning today itself. Um, here, take a listen to um, his press conference or whatever where he announced this. This is one of the most challenging times for government in a generation. Government really needs to function today. Government needs to perform. It is a matter of life and death, government operations. And wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do, because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. Kathy Hochul, my lieutenant governor, is smart and competent. This transition must be seamless. We have a lot going on. I'm very worried about the Delta variant. And so should you be. But she can come up to speed quickly, and my resignation will be effective in 14 days. So with that fall from grace for Cuomo, he has probably lost his political career and prospects. A guy who was once seen as a presidential candidate probably will not be able to do so, at least in the short term. And his lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, will be sworn in in 14 days as the 57th governor and the first female governor of New York State. Because this is the season finale, it's likely I won't return with this story. But stay tuned for the political news blog on the shawnashow.com for an article about Ms. Hochul, uh, her biography, and the next steps for Cuomo. I felt it was necessary to at least cover or mention this story, which out of all of the others has been going on for the longest time. Anyway, those were some of the biggest stories in politics over this past summer. When we come back, I'll take a look at the future of American politics over the next couple of months. And then I have a special message on the conclusion of this season. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All right, so I'm back from the break. Before we left, I talked about the biggest stories of the summer that I covered here on this show. Now let's take a look at the future of American politics. So like with any political landscape, when we're looking at the future of American politics or politics in general, you want to look first at the current administration. So President Biden has a lot of things that he still needs to deal with and things that he needs to watch for in the future. First on his list, of course, is COVID-19 and the Delta variant saga. 
COVID has been an ongoing issue for the entirety of his term, and Delta is now really screwing things up again. President Biden needs to figure out a proper means of suppressing the spread of this very dangerous virus slash variant and or he must work to get more and more people vaccinated because look, the Delta variant is seriously impacting and unfortunately is taking the lives of unvaccinated people. And to put it in the president's words, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Then another issue that must be on the top of mind is the economy. While we're recovering pretty well and more people are finding employment, we've still not been able to reach pre-pandemic levels of employment. And inflation is becoming a serious issue that's rocking a lot of stuff. And then, of course, the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, national security and foreign policy. They all have some concerning points with a bit of a rocky withdrawal. I believe the last time I read about this, the Taliban had taken control of six provinces or capitals or something, uh, some subdivision, administrative division within Afghanistan, six of them. So President Biden has a lot on his to-do list of things to seriously address. And because of the prevalence of all of these issues and more, I'm assuming that we'll get something from him on all of these matters at some point in in the near, near future. All right. Another thing that's on Biden's agenda, at least political agenda, is the 2022 midterm elections. I've said this before, but everything that President Biden does today and till November 5th, 2022, they are all going to have an impact on dozens. Wait, no, hundreds of elections across America on that deadline date of the 5th. The midterms at this point aren't very conclusive in how they're set, are, they're set to turn out. But at least in the House, Nancy Pelosi may not be retaining her speakership. This is because of an array of factors, including the fact that most of the time in, in modern American history, political history anyway, incumbent presidents as parties simply do not do well in House elections in the midterms. It's just something that's happened. I've discussed these antidotes before, anecdotes rather, excuse me, with uh, Obama in his first midterm and Trump in his first midterm. It's just an ongoing thing. The president's party just doesn't do well. Republicans, and in addition to that, Republicans look united and under the same banner of policy beliefs for the most part, and they, they, they seem like they're going to have a united front going into 2022. And they're in a pretty good position to criticize Democrats for a lot of things to their base. Democrats are spending a lot of money. COVID restrictions with the increased appearance of the Delta variant is creating that whole issue of, you know, mandates and stuff that, if we all remember, happened last year, too. Controversies from Democrat officials like Governor Gavin Newsom's recall and more recently Andrew Cuomo's resignation. Democrats either have to recover seamlessly or they have to face the consequences of all of these issues that they must address. Now, in the Senate, it's a different situation because, look, in the House, uh, in the House, it's far more of a it's a smaller group of people that you have to win over. Uh, and you're winning roughly about 700,000 people. So that can change a lot. Whereas in the Senate, it's just every state gets two people. So in the in these situations, it becomes a little easier for the president's party to retain control of the Senate because they're winning over 
a large number of voters as opposed to the small number of voters that House representatives need to win over. So with that in, in mind, I don't see a lot of change, which can be seen as a good thing for Democrats or good for Republicans as well. I think it's good for Democrats because there are, I think at this time, five retirements from Republicans, of which two or three states look like excellent targets to pursue for Democrats. And with all their seats right now that are up next year, it wouldn't be too surprising if Democrats retain control of the Senate and increase their seat count and give President Biden control, at least of some of his agenda. Now, that doesn't count out the chance of Republicans taking back seats in states like Arizona and Georgia. Mind you, it's a 50-50 Senate, so Republicans need to just win back one seat or Democrats just need to win back a seat to, well, they don't need to win back the seat. They just need to keep their 50, but Republicans just need to flip one seat and they'll be in control. So this may not be some good news for Republicans in the short term if Democrats have a better opportunity in 2022, but Democrats retaining control of the Senate in 2022 means that it gives Republicans an opportunity to strike back even harder for 2024 and also win bigger. Now, speaking of 2024, the race for the Republican nomination seems to already be taking off with or without former President Donald Trump. Potential candidates from all parts of the Republican Party, like Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and others, are racing around the country to early primary states and swing states to familiarize themselves with residents and locals, and they're also going to early fundraisers to build that campaign chest. Now, in addition to that, we've also seen a lot of these Republicans make some interesting moves. For example, Governor Christy Noem of South Dakota and DeSantis from Florida are sending troops from their National Guard to the border, even though neither of their states are on the border. This may be well-intentioned from a Republican perspective, um, but when I look at this politically... To me, it's just them trying to build their political profile and build themselves some headlines on them, you know, doing stuff at the border. So a lot of these Republican officials are doing that kind of stuff right now. And that's normal when you're a rising star in the political party and it's one year after the election and you're in the opposition, of course, you are doing all these kinds of things to build your name and to show people that you're willing to do this and that Stuff like that is going on everywhere in the Republican Party. But with 2024, I couldn't possibly leave you guys without talking about the Republican elephant in the room, Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, unlike most of his predecessors, has been an outspoken critic of his successor and is sparking a lot of excitement among his base for a part two to his administration. Over the course of these past seven or eight months, Trump has been hinting and hinting continuously at the possibility of running again in 2024 for a rematch against President Biden, who has said, President Biden has said that it is his plan to run for re-election with Kamala Harris. Now, in fact, with Sean Hannity a few weeks ago, President Trump had said in a town hall that he had made up his mind on, on whether or not he wants to run. He didn't tell us what he wants to do, but he told us he knows what he wants to do. He knows that he has a yes or a no. We don't know if it's yes or no, but we 
are aware that there is a decision that's been made. So that's a look at the future of politics in my mind for the near future. Stick around. I'll be right back. Producing this show has been a crazy and interesting journey, and I can't believe honestly how fast everything has gone in this first season. And I'm equally amazed by all the headlines that I've had the opportunity to cover here on this show. Now, when I think about it, I think everything just passed by so fast because of a phenomenon that I explained in my first episode, which was that the American political system runs on this unique base that no other country does. And our headlines are never ending. That's because the world of American politics is like a living thing. It's always doing something, and it always has an impact on the people around it, like you and me and millions of Americans across the country. I'm glad that this show has become an avenue for people to get political news, and I've tried my best to be as objective as I can. And I know I've been able to do that because I have listeners from both sides of the aisle. Now, whether or not you've agreed with me in my analysis, I do hope at least I was able to inform you on all the things that happen in politics because it's important to be aware of and it's something that impacts you every day from national security to economic policy to, yes, infrastructure as well. (laughs) So while this show is going to leave, I look forward to returning soon with more topics to discuss and probably more news. And as we head into midterm season, I look forward to covering more elections. And of course, I want to thank you, the listeners, for all your support in this show. Your continued returns for episodes and sharing them with your friends and family have helped out so much, and I'm grateful for that. So if you've liked all my analysis and want to be the first to know about the this show's return, then follow our Instagram and Twitter at the Sean S Show for breaking news updates and posts about the show. Check out the Show.com where I cover topics in political news and a great central location for all elements of, of this show. And of course, please continue to share this episode and all the others with your friends and family. It helps out so much. And thank you for your time, your support. It's been an honor to report to all of you. This is the Ishan S. Show. I'm your host, Ishan, and I'll see you all for season two. Bye.